This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I'm very excited to be back with you after taking a brief break. And before I excitedly introduce you to our first guest of the new season, I have a special announcement to make. On August 23rd, I will be publishing a second edition of my book, Lead from the Heart. And I wanted to share the news here with you first. It was 11 years ago that I first wrote Lead from the Heart, a book that argued way back then that our traditional ways of motivating human behavior in our workplaces were failing and that we needed an entirely new way of managing people going forward. Many of you know that book has since been taught in nine American universities and went on to become an Amazon bestseller. What you may not know is that the business world took a long time to warm up to its thesis. Bringing heart into leadership has always been frowned upon, you know. But with a two-year-long pandemic and an ongoing great resignation in our current history, business leaders have now grown desperate for proven guidance on how to win back the hearts, minds, and engagement of their employees. And I am 100% certain my new book provides it. I'll be sharing more details on the book in the next few podcast episodes, but want you to know two things now. First, the new edition is essentially all new. There are several more chapters and afterward and great new research that will blow your minds in terms of how it validates that heart is truly the missing piece in leadership today. And second, I want you to know this new book is a fulfillment of my entire life's work. Some people have called me a pioneer, a path cutter, a visionary for being so far ahead with this message. But in reality, I knew the truth in my message long ago and have simply remained fully committed to proving its viability. I'd be honored if you pre-ordered a copy or even get some copies for your team and you can find it on Amazon now. And now, on to our show. It's a great honor for me to welcome David Gergen to our podcast and to launch our new season. New York Times bestselling author, White House advisor to four U.S. presidents of different parties, longtime CNN senior political commentator and founder of the John F. Kennedy Center for Public Leadership at Harvard University. Gergen is what author Tom Wolfe calls a man in full. It's notable that at 80 years old, Gergen is the oldest guest we've ever had on the podcast. And at 80, It's no less remarkable that he's just written a rather inspiring book that defines the comprehensive process for becoming an exceptional leader. And I will add that his book on the very first week has already made it to number eight on the New York Times bestseller list. The name of his book is Hearts Touched by Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. And Gergen tells us that the complete development of a leader occurs in two parts, an inner journey and an outer journey. These are never ending journeys, of course, and their purpose is for each of us to cultivate self-awareness and self-mastery along the way. Gergen may sound old school when he asserts that courage, compassion, and character remain essential leadership qualities, even when far too few public leaders routinely exhibit them today. He believes members of Gen Z, Gen Y, and even Gen X are repelled by how they've watched their predecessors manage and are ready to bring about the needed change in all of our organizations. David Gergen is a man full of leadership wisdom, and he joins us now to share it with you. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. David Gergen. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, this is a quite an honor for me, and we're launching our new season with you, David. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation, and I absolutely have to say 
I really loved your book and oh, good. find it remarkable with all the things you've got going that you had time to put a book together like this. And there's a lot of philosophy in it that is inspiring that I want to get to. And so you write that you've been influenced by Joseph Campbell, who famously yeah. wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it was Campbell who first described the development of a leader as occurring in two parts. And you write about this, an inner journey and an outer journey. So I really wanted to start there with you. David, tell us about both of these journeys and why self-awareness and self-mastery are two essential requirements of becoming an effective leader. Sure. Well, let's first go back to Joseph Campbell. He was a remarkable human being, a scholar of civilizations, and went back and studied how different civilizations all had similar narratives about the origins of that civilization and where it was going. And namely, what they argued was that there's a journey, that leadership is a journey, that, that life is a journey. And what you find in the beginning of that journey is you first discover yourself because, you know, you live internally, in effect, when you're young and you're in a continuing conversation with yourself when you're young. And much of your success as a leader, Campbell argued, will be about whether you have great self-awareness, whether you actually understand who you are indeed. And, you know, you're candid with yourself so that you're not fooling anybody, including you, about what you represent, but rather you're trying to be as honest as possible with yourself. And then once you have self-understanding, how do you deal with those temptations in life that require self-mastery? My first president working for when I was just when a young kid was Richard Nixon. In the White House, I had a chance to see him up close a lot, and I realized fairly quickly that he had one of the best strategic minds I had ever encountered. Henry Kissinger has been writing about that recently in a new book that he has coming out. And the point is that Nixon was, along with Kissinger, could figuratively go up on a mountaintop, look toward the past, understand the past, and then apply that to the future and what they could see in the future. Churchill argued, and they proved that the farther back you can look, the farther ahead you can often look. So they had a sense, the strategic sense, which was very powerful. But as much as that normally a president like Nixon would get credit for that part of things becoming strategic, the truth was he also had demons inside him that he had never learned to control. And that's the self-mastery part. You've got to understand yourself, but then you've got to come to grips with those parts of the dark side of your personality. Carl Jung, who was a contemporary of Freud's, argued that we all have bright sides, but we also have dark sides. And one of the main ventures for anybody sort of growing of age is to bring that dark side under control so that you're self-regulated. You've got to become a leader of yourself before you can become of service to others. How do you recommend that people actually gain that self-mastery? Know thyself. And by the way, do you think most people that are 25, 35, 40 realize that they're on a journey and that the journey is partially self-discovery, self-mastery? Do you think people understand that? I think they intuitively get a sense of it, but having a more acute sense of it or defined sense of it is something I think that comes with age. And it comes with wisdom. It's one thing to go read a lot of books, but if you don't get anything from them, if you don't put some stories and narratives together, you really haven't learned very much. The story of leadership is about continually about people who have figured out who they were early. They developed a set of values by which they tried to navigate their lives. They engaged in authentic leadership, as we call it, or the pursuit of a true north in your life. 
but that they also had to come to grips with all these temptations. As modern as contemporary as what Bill Clinton brought to the White House, and he paid a price because he didn't have things fully under control. He'd, he'd come a long way. But leadership, is a, the journey is not an easy one. It's one that requires a lot of work. And it requires a lot of self-psychology. And it requires a lot of patience. I think one of the presidents that I most admire because of how successful he was in helping and guiding the country through some of the worst threats to our democracy and our history, the Great Depression and the Second World War. Those are both existential moments in the life of our public. And in both cases, a, an FDR would really had to come to grips with himself and all the afflictions that he had. Could have been a very angry man because he could never walk again after he got polio. But instead, he turned his polio into a strength and became a much stronger president, much more self-reliant president, a man who was much more serious about life than he had been before polio struck. So it is a continuing journey. And Mark, the last thing, it is a journey of a lifetime. It doesn't start and stop when you're 38 or 40 or 5 or 45. You know, you learn new things as you go through life. And you know, so your, your views evolve over time. So I want your language. Are you encouraging us to be paying attention to life? How are we developing not just self-mastery, but the bigger part of self-mastery, which is what you called, you know, repressing or coming to terms with yeah. our demons so that they don't run interference on our success. Yes, yeah. The demons did Nixon in. He was once asked by David Frost in a television interview, Frost from BBC, how did Watergate get so awful for you? The word you go wrong. And Nixon said to David Frost, I gave my enemies a sword and then they ran me through. And that was the truth of the matter. Those demons brought him down. He self-immolated. He self-destructed. And he never recovered from it as a leader. And you see that with a variety of leaders. It said, as Gerald said, there are no second chances in American life. I thought that went too far. In fact, a lot of us who went through Watergate did have second chances in life. We thought, after being on the Nixon team, it was like playing for the Chicago Black Sox. Scarlet Letter. Yeah, the Scarlet Letter, the Chicago Black Sox through a World Series back in the early 20s, and they could never play baseball again. They were banned from baseball for life. Well, we in the political world do often do get second chances. Look at Michael Milken, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who paid a huge price for some of his behavior early in his life, but now has an annual conference that brings CEOs from all over the country. So they come to his doorstep, and he's had a big second chance indeed. So... You can't put yourself together again. You, you do have an opportunity often to pay your dues and reconstruct your life, but you don't want to do that too often. No. <laughs> well, ideally, not even once, but yes, I'm in agreement. In practical terms, yes. how does one deal with those demons? How does one identify that they even have demons? Yeah. Well, a lot of it depends on your willingness, and I think, thank goodness, we're moving to a more accepting age, uh, your willingness to confide in the therapist or you know, your psychiatrist. There was a time in our politics, if you were seeing a psychologist or something like that, you were written off as being, mm -hmm. you know, that was a stigma. Uh, now, frankly, I often don't trust somebody until they've really been through a bad fall and then recovered, because I don't know what they're really truly made of. I've been fooled before about what the contents of somebody and watching two or three friends go down and watching myself go down take a bad hit occasionally and you do get into a conversation about what does all this mean internal conversation but 
I also think maybe it's because my wife is a family therapist and says, I've seen so many successes she's had. Mm -hmm. And my oldest brother is a psychiatrist. My next oldest brother has been a social psychologist. My wife is a therapist. So I've been around a lot of these emotional mm -hmm. issues for a long time and have come to understand that they're much more central to your well-being and to your behavior in the world if you pay attention to them and be modest about yourself, humble about your story. But be serious about it. Be candid with yourself. And I think that makes a person much more stable and rooted. In public life, I come to care a lot about, is this person really well anchored? Or are they going to go off the deep end somewhere? Has this person really been challenged in life, had a hardship in life? And I find that people have had hardships and have had to recover from them. And if you make it back, you're actually stronger. That's a marvelous insight. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. You write very early on that we need leaders with courage, compassion, and character. Yes. And you not only say that these have always been essential, but you say that the need for them has grown exponentially. So I'm interested in your comment on that. But let me pin this down and say, when we choose, when we actually either vote politically in elections or when we make selections of leaders in our organizations, in our businesses, do you think that we really fully weight those qualities? In other words, are they deal killers? Well, that person, we don't really see them having a lot of courage or compassion and character, so they're not qualified. I guess I'm asking you to defend the assertion. Oh, I, I think it's essential that people have qualities like courage and compassion and capacity, three C's as some people call them. Churchill said the greatest of all qualities a leader needs is courage. But there are other people who believe, no, compassion and empathy is far more important than the courage. And that is showing real love and support for friends, for people outside your orbit, for people outside yourself. So I guess I'm old fashioned. So I do believe that there are certain qualities that we've looked for in leaders for thousands of years, going all the way back 2,500 years ago, the Greeks and the Romans. They were people who stole these qualities, and they were very serious about it. The philosophers of the ancient Greece and Rome had more to say to us about life than almost anybody else today. Marcus Aurelius, for example, was a figure from the past with Bill Clinton when he was president. We climbed up board Air Force One to go somewhere. Ted Koppel was sitting there at ABC, wonderful journalist some years ago, and he was reading a book, and Clinton said to Ted, Ted, what book are you reading? And Ted said, oh, I'm reading about Marcus Aurelius and what he had to say philosophically. And Clinton said, oh, yes, I know that book. And he said, I've read it several times. And Koppel said, I read it every year. I come back to read it every year. And so I do think that there are certain values in life that are immutable, that survive and exist over centuries. At the same time, just as you have as a leader to have these control of these and, and mastery of, of these old values that we care so much about, in today's world, you also have to have some new values. You've got to adjust to the context in which you find yourself. And today, I think we've learned that we have moved beyond the great man theory of leadership. The great man theory was when the society was in crisis, there might be a somebody on a white horse who would ride into town and mm -hmm. fix everything and then ride out of town, almost like Cincinnati's putting down his plow. But now what you find is it's not the great man as such. We need great people. We need more Zelenskys, obviously. Mm -hmm. But the nonetheless, in today's world, it's much more about teams, the building of teams. Let me give you two examples. One of the most memorable photographs of John F. Kennedy during his presidency was of Kennedy in the Oval Office at dusk 
was hunched over on a table. It looked like, I think he was thinking about a globe or something like that. But you could just tell he had the weight of the world upon his shoulders, that he was looked to as the one person who could basically save civilization. And that was a huge burden to carry around. But you think about that as a classic picture of the great man as he was envisioned by earlier society. You compare that to President Obama, one of the most memorable pictures from his presidency is when the United States is on the chase for Osama bin Laden and Barack Obama is down in the Situation Room at the White House in the West Wing. He's not just Obama by himself. It's Obama watching a screen with his Secretary of State, his Secretary of Defense, his CIA director, his NSA director. His team. His team. Mm-hmm. It was his team. That is the way in which a leadership is approached today. You need to build strong teams as well as have strong individuals. You have to have a team that can work together. And it's a force multiplier, as they would say in the military. Mm-hmm. It's a way, to, it's a way mm-hmm. to be able to do bigger, much bigger things. There was a woman who used to run. She was the first CEO of the Gates Foundation. Her name was Patty Stonecipher. And she used to frequently quote an African proverb that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we're all familiar with that photograph. So that's a fantastic illustration that you just gave us. Yeah. Good. Thank you. David, we're living in this society that is woefully divided and seemingly just intolerant of people who don't share our views. And nothing I've ever seen in my lifetime in terms of the polarity that seems to exist. And so I wanted to ask you, how do you think this lack of interest in finding common ground, the lack of interest in cooperation and collaboration is affecting, let's keep it specific, to workplace leadership? Like what we're seeing in society as a whole, how is that overflowing into workplace leadership? I think we're in increasingly dangerous times that we're not often being square with ourselves about how close to the edge we are. I've made the analogy, maybe others have, uh, that it's, it's like we're in a car in the middle of the night, driving in a pelting rainstorm on the edges of a cliff with our lights out. That's where we are today. Mm -hmm. And we're still on top of that cliff, but we could go over the side pretty damn easily. I think our foundations are, we're not as rooted in traditional American values and what America's place in the world and how fortunate we are to live in this country. We're not appreciating that. We're not honoring that. Because if we did, we would be much more civil with each other and we'd be much kinder to each other. And there would be far more love in this country than there is today. You and I are used to growing up in a country that was quite different from what we see today, which means it can change and it can evolve again. I think one of the most important responsibilities for all citizens today is to put down some of these damn poisonous differences and sit down with each other and listen to each other. I am very much a fan of something called national SERPs, and that is to ask every 18 to 24-year-old, maybe a little later in life, to give a year back to their communities, to volunteer for a year, you know, working in a local school or in a hospital or on climate change or on first responder basis. There are lots of things people could be doing. Give a year back to your neighborhood. We'll give you a year off your tuition debt. Give us a couple of years. We'll, we'll give you two years off. First year, you'll learn to be a follower. If you stick around for a second year, we'll make you a leader. So you'll have responsibility. You'll share responsibility. But the critical thing is that that can be done. We've had a case study already. When Franklin Roosevelt was first president, he believed in national service 
And within a month after he took the Oval Office, uh, took the oath for the Oval Office in the spring of 1933, within a month he called for the creation of the Civilian Conservation Corps. Mm-hmm. The Civilian Conservation Corps was a program that enlisted young men, in those days just young men, paid them a dollar a day, sent some money home with them, gave them a job in the woods and the parks to really rehabilitate those areas that withered, if you would. Mm-hmm. National parks. Mm-hmm. National mm-hmm. parks and forests. And at any event, by that summer, remember, and compare this to how we've moved today, how bureaucratic and slow we are today. FDR called for this in spring 1933. Within three months, we had 250,000 young men in the park and in the woods. And we had people like George Marshall, who in military uniform, helping to make these programs work. And we created a group of people who believed in each other, who had civic virtue the rest of their lives. That's what we need to restore today. We need to have people who feel responsible for the future of the country come together and work together as we must to make sure that the country our children and grandchildren inherit is one that's governable. Right now, we're turning over a mess. We have an obligation to the next generations to clean this up, to open the door to more young people, and to change our civic culture into something that's much more recognizable instead of the craziness we have today. You have an extraordinary pulpit with your work on television and and in all the media, and I hope you'll continue to shout that message from the mountaintops. The truth is, I was going to ask you, what's your solution? And you you gave me the solution without asking, and it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Mark, there are other ways we can look at things. For example, the international, when the bombs stop dropping and bullets stop flying, What about the idea of creating an international peace corps led by America to go into and rebuild Ukraine? Mm -hmm. Have people from Western democracies all around the world come together, young people especially, and volunteer to rebuild that country, to to not let this be a blot on our civilization. Something like that, I think it would be interesting. In some parts of their country, young people don't want to volunteer. They think it's public arena. It's sort of dirty. You never get anything done. People are just yelling at each other. You know, this poisonous environment, why be part of that? You understand that antipathy and weariness about joining up. But if we're ever going to get this under control, we've got to be willing to do some things that are tough. We've got to have some beliefs that we can crack this thing open and get back to real life and what the real America was all about. We were an experiment, after all, and we're in very grave danger of that experiment now failing. Wow. Well, I mean, I love the idea of an international peace corps, and, and we all know that at some point that Ukraine's going to have to be rebuilt. But we also know that as a society, and this is attributed right now to Gen Z, the youngest generation coming into the workforce, yes. but it's true of all of us. We're looking for purpose. We're looking for meaning. Right. And having an opportunity right. to go and rebuild a country after what's going on there is uh, it's a yeah. very inspiring solution. It's really great. Well, thank you. Let me just say, in terms of the generations, and I've now been engaged in conversations like this for a while, and one of the groups we really ought to pay more attention to is what's called Generation X. It's the generation between the baby boomers and the millennials, people born between 1965 and 1980, and many of them are now in their 30s and 40s. They feel very passed over that they're not you know, they're not leaders of the country, that the leadership has fallen to the, the boomers and to the millennials and Gen Z increasingly. So I think we ought to give Generation X time at bat. I think they could be bridged through today's horrors. We need some people who can help us through the next three to five to eight year, 10 years. 
But the millennials and Gen Z, they're our long-term hope. They're the people who are going to be coming to power 10, 15 years from now. And we ought to be preparing them now for lives of leadership and service. I must tell you, I do think some universities are coming around to this, recognizing they have this larger responsibility to prepare people for lives of service. Stanford has a great big program right now called the Knight Hennessy Program which really does a lot to provide fellowship money and enables a lot of young people of color to prepare themselves. Say the name of that program again. Sure, it's called the Knight Hennessy Program. Knight, Phil Knight, Nike. Mm -hmm. gave a huge amount of money. And John Hennessy was president of Stanford, stepped down to help run this program. They raised over $700 million, as I recall. I don't have the exact number in front of me. But the Yale Law School has now set up a program to prepare young leaders and is plowing lots of money into it. Here at Harvard, we have a program that I'm affiliated with to help and prepare young leaders. So I think you're going to see around the country more of these kind of efforts, which I applaud. But what I really hope is that people embrace the ideas of Martin Luther King Jr., who are you don't have to go to an elite school to serve other people well. What you do need is soul and not elite universities. And I think that's so right. King argued everyone can serve others. It doesn't require an Ivy League degree to do that. Wow. Hey, let's transition and talk a little bit about the current state of the American, actually global workplace. I actually coincidentally just saw that some statistics that have proved that the Great Recession is impacting countries like Singapore and India. We know it's affecting in Great Britain and Europe, but also specifically 45 million plus people quit their jobs in 2021. And the the estimate is that the numbers are going to be even worse this year. So what's your assessment? Having come off writing this book, what's your assessment of what's driving the Great Recession, if you will? And what do you think the solution is going to be? Well, I think people came into this period, the pandemic period, the recession period, already distrusting our institutions, especially government, but also business, less so defense. The Defense Department gets a bigger plus. But there was a lot of feeling already you couldn't trust our leaders and that what we were suffering was a failure of leaders, a failure across the board. And it was really pulling us down. You know, Michael Porter, who was here at the Harvard Business School, was celebrated scholar and student of the economy, strategy and the economy, too. He did a whole study with a number of other professors on competitiveness, American competitiveness, how competitive are we with the rest of the world. And what they discovered, this was like five years ago, eight years ago, is that we had all the makings for a great economy. We had an innovative society. We had people who wanted to take risks. We had, you know, we had financial instruments that seemed to work very well. We were closing some of the inequity gaps. But one thing was holding us back, and that was the poisonous paralysis of our politics. And that was really getting in our way. And so what I think has happened here, things have gotten, instead of getting better during this pandemic period, they've simply gotten worse. We're taking stuff backwards. Now we have an inflamed public about the Supreme Court and where we're going with our judicial branch. I think a lot of it was a wake-up call to a lot of people who thought, well, they'll never get rid of all these presidents. They've been around for a long, long time. Surely they won't get rid of them. And guess what they did? And they just would take one big swat. The court changed our lives. So that leaves a lot of people feeling much more vulnerable than you know, something that, like we took 100 years to create a world in which women were being treated much more fairly, equitably, to destroy it almost overnight. And I think that's been alarming for people. 
And the world, is, as we know, it seems to be turning upside down. So there's a lot of fear. And that's why I think we need to get on with the business of building a better America. We can't just sit here paralyzed by fear and by anger and by exhaustion. And we basically, at some point, have to get back to work and rebuilding this country. And I think that I hope we're going to start doing that soon. My general sense is I tend to be a short-term pessimist. I think that the next six, seven years are going to be rough, even rougher than what we've seen before and potentially much more dangerous. But I'm a, I remain a long-term optimist. I do think signs are on the far horizon that are more hopeful. I see a lot of young people now who do want to make a difference, who are trying to change things. We have a whole stream of people, people of color, who are backing this. Thing. You know, we had the Me Too movement invented by a young black woman in her 20s. The Black Lives Matter movement, you know, invented by three black young women in their 20s and 30s. There are important things going on in the streets of America. The Parkland kids, Greta Thunberg in Sweden, Malala in Pakistan, Zelensky in, in Ukraine. There are a lot of people out there who are younger, who want to make changes, who are terrifically promising. And we need to put them to work. And we need, frankly, those of us who are much older need to step back. And so and open the door, invite people in who are younger to run the country and run the world. You know, those of us who are older, we've had our time in the driver's seat. You know, it's time we gave people back the keys and let younger people drive the car. This clinging to power that some of our older people are engaged in right now, it's wrong. We should not be debating whether one 80-year-old person is going to be versus another 80-year-old in the presidency over the next four years. We don't need presidents who are in their 80s. We need presidents who are like corporations. Corporations in America, typically, if you're a CEO, they ask you to retire by the time they're 66, 67. Why is that? Because they think you're not going to be as effective. Why do we let the president of the United States be someone in their 80s when you can't be a CEO in your 60s? Makes no sense to me. So I do think we ought to be looking at this, re-examining our theses so that we get ourselves on the right track. Well, we know power is addictive, David. And so I don't know who's going to take that advice. Well, it's hard. But I think this is not a Trump point, nor is it a Biden point. It's a point about the two of them together, because I think on this one, they're in the same boat. And it's inappropriate to be sort of clinging onto the curtains. When you're older, I think there are times you can be terrific in providing advice and counsel to the president and to others. As a young boy, I remember how helpful it was for a young Jack Kennedy to have Dwight Eisenhower looking over his shoulder and trying to help him. I really made a major difference for Kennedy in a lot of different ways. And the older guy providing advice, but Eisenhower didn't try to stick around until two more terms, for goodness sakes. So there's a lot to be said for the younger generations, and many are knocking on the door. Now, don't get me wrong. One thing that is clear to me, there are a lot of young people don't want to get in the arena. They think it's dirty. It's hard. They think your family comes under consideration. You might have to have details, you know, security details, all these kind of things make life in the arena challenging. But there are other young people who are ready to roll. They want to rock and roll, and they're really terrific, and they deserve a chance to be running the country right away. One of the things you're talking about is dealing with this ambiguous world. And in your book, you talk about the need to create and cultivate really flexibility, versatility, resilience. Right. How do you do that before you actually need those traits? Well, you got to recognize what's important. You got to understand resilience. Uh, you've got to be willing, I think, to take some risks in life. And when you take risks, you're going to get one wrong, you're going to get knocked down. So you've got to be prepared for that, be prepared for, you know, this whole theory. It's not how often you get knocked down in life. It's how often you get up. 
And I think if you're really going to be honest with yourself, you have to realize this is not patty cake. This is real. It's hard. You need perseverance. You need patience. You need inner strength. And you need to be well anchored, anchored by family, anchored by faith. There can be many reasons, but many ways to be anchored. But I, I do think this question of coming to grip with a more serious approach to life. We're in serious time, and we need to get through this as one republic. We've gotten through existential threats before, but there's no guarantee we're going to get through this one. You also mentioned something that I found really inspiring, which is this idea of taking our setbacks, our failures, but most specifically the things yeah. that are more tragic in our lives and yes. using them as crucibles. Yes. That's your language. So tell us about that and maybe give us an illustration or two of some people who have done that. Because I think sometimes we use our setbacks as justification for not progressing any further. How do you get over that hurdle? I, I agree. Yeah, you use it as justification, you use it as a crutch to not really deal with. We talked about Joseph Campbell earlier. We ought to talk about Daniel Seligman for a moment. Psychology, as you know, for so long asked the question of what's wrong with a person, and then how do we analyze, how do we fix what's wrong? Seligman came along and said, no, no, we ought to be asking about what's right with people. And he became the father of positive psychology, as it's called. And it is, how do you embrace your strengths in order to deal with harsh realities or times you get knocked down? Seligman found there were three different groups, essentially, who went through adversity and had different outcomes. The first group, when it gets knocked down, never gets back up. It's just forever crippled or whatever in life, psychologically. You know, have these crutches and they just sort of hide from reality. So that's the least helpful path out. A second group is knocked down pretty hard, but it begins to recover. And within a year, they're back to where they were before they got hit. They work their way back into a stable place where they can go on with life. But there's a third group that's the most interesting one. That is, they not only have the resilience of the second group, but they actually become stronger because of what they go through. They gather themselves together, and in many, many cases, they embrace lives of moral purpose. And they're sustained by that belief that they perhaps can leave behind a legacy that's better than them, that is something positive in the world. When I think about Joseph Campbell, I often think about Bill Boyers, who conducted this famous series of interviews on public broadcasting on Joseph Campbell with Bill Moyers, providing new context from the modern world. And what Bill wrote about was, I called to check him on this, make sure I remembered it properly. He talked once of being on a trek through Africa, and he and his team were caught early by darkness. They hadn't appreciated it was coming, and they had to make it a little farther along in the darkness and in the jungle. And they came upon an opening, a clearing, where there was a tribe gathered around a campfire, tribe of 30, 40 people. And every 15, 20 minutes, a young person in the tribe would get up, go over to a woodpile, and bring back three or four pieces of wood and put them on the fire. And that was his contribution to keeping the fire going and keeping the tribe warm throughout the night. And I think that's an apt metaphor for what all, the responsibility all of us have. Each of us ought to bring our own logs to the fire we have today and keep it going. We have a responsibility to the young that that fire not go out. Is there anybody that comes to mind who sort of embodies this third option, which is becoming stronger and leveraging the crucible, if you will, to become something spectacular? 
as a result of having had the tragedy in their life. Well, one of the people I wrote about in the book was Catherine Graham, who was a personal friend mm-hmm. and, as you know, owner of the Washington Post. What is often not discussed very often is the hardship she went through early in life. She was married to a very, very bright man named Phil, and they were prominent in Washington. And Catherine Graham at that point was a house mom, was mom at home. I think she had three or four children at that time. So she was a mother, and it was her husband, Phil, who got all the accolades and all the spotlight. But Phil had radical changes of mood, and which eventually discovered to be an illness he really couldn't control and put her through hell because it was such a difficult period when he was acting out, had multiple affairs, Mm -hmm. and it was just sort of a mess. But she hung in there, and he eventually had to be institutionalized because of his bipolar quality. And uh, three months into his time in the institution, he persuaded his doctors to let him go home to their country place out in the hills of Virginia to spend a weekend together, he and his wife, Kay Graham. So they went out there, and in the middle of the afternoon, they both decided they would have a nap. And while she was lying down, she heard this terrific bang downstairs. She rushed down, discovered her husband, who had taken his life with a shotgun. And so you can imagine that was a huge crucible for her. And she was in deep mourning for a while. But Catherine Graham had a remarkable resilience. But more than that, she came out with a real sense of purpose in life that People tried to talk her out of trying to run the newspaper because they said she had no experience running the newspaper, which was true. They tried to get her to sell the newspaper. And she came back and said, we're keeping the newspaper in the family name, the Graham name, and I'm going to run it. I'm going to run the operation. I'm going to bring in a financial person to really help me, but I'm going to oversee this. And she went and took some really gutsy stands on Watergate, and she took really gutsy stands on the Pentagon Papers. And she was very bold, put her newspapers at some risk. But she did so because she had come out of that period with Phil through that crucible with the belief that it was important for the rest of her life that the Washington Post become a great newspaper because it told the truth and it stuck to the truth. And Ben Bradley was a tough, mean SOB at times, but kept that newspaper going. They really improved the quality of it. Uh, the trust levels went up, became a national newspaper. That was someone I thought in my personal life experience, recovered beautifully from a crucible. There are others I write about in the book, but Kay Graham is because she was a friend. I have such uh, strong beliefs about. Fantastic. David, where, if at all, does the heart belong in leadership today? Does heart have a place in leadership? The Buddhist says that the longest journey in one's body is the journey from your mind to your heart. And I think what we've learned about leadership, particularly in the last few years. So many people seem so indifferent to what's going on. But what we learned in leadership is the importance of greater empathy for our fellow human beings, that there are a lot of people who are going through agony these days because the quality of our our discourse, quality of our country has seemed to be going downhill so rapidly. And yes, I do think things have changed in one sense, and that is There is a widespread recognition now that empathy is an important quality of leadership, that trying to walk in somebody else's moccasins is important, that listening to other people is important. That's not to say you're going to solve all problems by being empathic, but it is to say that you're going to approach them with much more sensitivity and receptivity to differences. Very good. So, David, we're going to take a quick break from our conversation and move into something we call the heartbeat round to help us learn about you more personally. I'm going to ask you several questions that we want you to answer instinctively and quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. Are you up for that? 
I'll try. Okay. First question. World leader of any era you most admire for their humanity, decency, and legacy? Nelson Mandela. An important piece of leadership wisdom you specifically learned in law school? Um, pay attention to detail. In your opinion, America's all-time greatest president? Clearly, Abraham Lincoln. Three books of any genre you wish every workplace manager would read? Well, I'm enjoying right now The Splendid and the Vile, which and I'm getting ready to read, I hope, a book about Churchill, Man of Destiny. But I would also strongly recommend Warren Bennis on Becoming a Leader. He's a dear friend who's no longer with us, uh, but was my mentor. And Bill George, who writes about authentic leadership. He's still with us, thank goodness, and very vital. Fantastic. Eric Larson was on our podcast discussing The Splendid and the Vile. Remarkable. Oh, terrific. Very good writer. Very, very good writer. And a fantastic book about Churchill. So great recommendations. Very uncommon. Your personal hero. I think Lincoln again. A guilty pleasure. A guilty pleasure. Do you think I'd admit that? <laughs> that needs a little I, more personal. No comment. Oh, really? <laughs> Not one? No. Well, I will tell you, I probably take more virtue in my whiskey than I should. All right. Very good. A lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. Uh, be kind. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Uh, arrogance. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. I think the next five, six years are going to be very rough, rougher than what we've seen already. Threatening years. But if we play our cards right, if we show some wisdom, we'll make it through, be stronger than ever on the other side. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Wisdom. Cultural value every organization should have. Honesty. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading. Financial Times. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Oh, go to the Arctic, understand what's happening, see what's happening to those wonderful, wonderful mounds of ice, and that you'll never be the same. We need to deal with climate change. And finally, an author or philosopher who influenced you most in your leadership thinking. Warren Bennis. Fantastic. Wonderful. Very, very inspiring answers. Thank you so very much for going through this with me. David, before we let you go, I want to turn the stage over to you and ask if there's anything about your book, Hearts Touched by Fire, that we haven't yet discussed and that you believe would be helpful to our audience to know. Any final insights you'd like everyone to be thinking about when the podcast is over? Yeah, I think there's a temptation now to give up. And what I would argue, please, don't give up on America. We've come through tougher times than this. We're going to get through this. We're going to play a big price getting through. Already we're paying a heavy price. Too many people are hurting in the country right now. Too many people are suffering. But this is a better country underneath all the craziness that's going on today. This is a better country. We are a better people than we're playing the game right now. We're not doing our share. We're not taking our responsibility. We're getting so wound up in being angry. And so, so tied into the emotions of the moment that we need to step back a little bit and say, hey, we need, to, we, need, we need a strategy to get out of this. We need a plan. We need to get people together. And we need to get beyond these current next elections and get settled down for a longer, more important, stable ride into the future. And one, we pay. Our goal in life should be to create a world that we're proud to turn over to our children and our grandchildren. Amen. Thank you so very much, David. On behalf of my audience, congratulations. Your book just came out. It's already New York Times bestseller. 
I really, really loved it. And this has just been a wonderful time with you, sir. So thank you so very much. Thank you, Mark. It was a good experience. You did a good job. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I am honored by that. And best to you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. As we close, I thought I'd mention that our next guest is going to be Bo So. At 28 years old, he'll be the youngest guest we've ever had on the podcast. He's a two-time U.S. national debate champion and the coach of the Harvard University debate team. He's about to graduate from Harvard Law School and is the author of the new surprising bestseller, Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard. I can promise you, you won't want to miss hearing our conversation. Brilliant theme music is the jazz classic, Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn nearly 75 years ago and is performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. As always, I want to thank my talented and wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. And I will leave you with my two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.